A good Tuesday to you and welcome to Real Talk. This episode of the show is presented by our partners, the team at Bitcoin Well. I was talking to Adam O'Brien, the founding CEO of Bitcoin Well the other day. I said, hey man, remind me your thoughts again on Ethereum. I was like, is Ethereum the enemy? He kind of laughed. He's like, no, not necessarily. He said, it's, it's, it's becoming more and more a part of the conversations we're having with people. I went, oh, okay, oh yeah, that's interesting because... You know, if you're talking about crypto, people are talking about all different kinds of coins and all different kinds, and you're, you're trying to pick the right one, and Bitcoin's kind of the OG. Is it the right choice for you? And if so, why? These are the questions you can put in front of their team anytime, and you'll find them under the Sponsors tab right at the top at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Great show coming up in about 10 minutes. Tim Powers joins us, uh, Managing Director of Abacus Data, the Vice Chairman of Summa Strategies and uh, a longtime uh, political strategist. We'll, we'll get into what the trends are showing, some really interesting data from Abacus. And of course, Tim's a big part of that. So that's coming up on the show in about 10 minutes. We're six days away from a federal election. Have you made up your mind or not. Some interesting insights in last week's edition of Get Real, our question of the week presented by Y Station. This week, by the way, uh, you'll find it on our website, ryanjesperson.com. If you're not already registered as part of our panel, we have a panel of hundreds of you that return every week automatically to fill out that questionnaire. It takes, you know, two, three minutes. We really appreciate your time. This week, we're asking you with fall in the air, the best summer ever, uh-huh, drawn to a close, but, but back to school season doesn't quite feel normal two weeks into the school year now for most students we've already seen COVID outbreaks at a number of schools around the province and our hospitals obviously feeling the pressure once again that coming up in a bit this week we're asking you to share your thoughts on the return to school mandatory vaccinations for teachers appropriate restrictions and uh you know so it's not all bad something that we're happy about as the kids headed back to school that's our question of the week this week and we'll be reviewing those the results of course presented by y station early Next week, coming up in about, uh, we'll call it, you know, 40 minutes or so. Looking forward to Scott Gilmore joining us back on the show, editor at large from McLean's, a former Canadian diplomat personally involved in ensuring that some Afghani citizens whose lives were at risk. Uh, we're able to find refuge in Canada, and, and we'll talk to Scott about that experience. He's got an interesting perspective, both as a civilian, obviously, plus as a former diplomat and, and a great storyteller. You remember when Scott was on the show a while ago, I referenced a conversation he and I had several years ago. He was, he was like a... Well, what do you want to call it? A, a politically homeless, small C conservative. And Scott went across the country, uh, essentially hosting these these meetups, really casual ones, not boring hotel boardroom meetups. But he was meeting people at pubs and buying the first round for everybody that would show up to discuss the future of small C conservatism in Canada. And uh, I asked Scott to to update us on where he was at with his personal political journey i wonder where he's at now now that he's watching campaigns underway i wonder where his vote might go i'll, I'll be rude i'll ask him don't worry scott gilmore coming up and then we're going to talk about sex porn and parents with sexuality researcher nathan lenhart uh, a vanier scholar a doctoral candidate out of the university of toronto what happens to sex lives of couples that have welcomed a baby to the world and uh can porn help or hurt it and Sarah Hoyles, I think I know the answer to that. I think I know where this is going. I think this is, if I may speculate, probably not going to be a ringing endorsement to, 
bring porn into your relationship, but I don't want to assume anything. No, don't assume. Never People assume. People will have to stay tuned to find out. I want to know how this got on Nathan's radar. Yeah. Like, was he a new parent? Did he hear, know of new parents? Was he So as a sexuality researcher, what an interesting gig, and we're going to get into that. Now, what a... What a sight to behold. What a what a movement. I mean, yesterday, essentially, I'm not the mayor of Edmonton, the city that we come to you from every day. And it's certainly not my job uh, nor my honor to bestow upon anybody an official day or the key to the city. But uh, I think you might as well say, because I think everyone would agree that yesterday was Julie Roar Day, although I don't think it was I don't think it was just in Edmonton. I think I think it was just the Internet. And the hashtag we love Julie Rohr was trending. You remember, she uh, obviously is a very good friend of this show. She's a member of our editorial board. She's fighting like hell right now in hospice care, a rare form of cancer. Julie joined us last Tuesday for uh, just an unbelievable interview that will cherish forever. And it prompted a ton of you to reach out. And so while we saw, uh, you know, video messages yesterday from the cast of Schitt's Creek, her favorite show, including Dan Levy uh, from Ryan Reynolds, from Rick Mercer. Did you see this? A private concert from uh, by Chantel Kreviasik for Julie and her husband last night. Uh, the two of them had about a, a 20 minute private show over what looked to be FaceTime or Zoom or something like that with with uh, the great singer out of Chantel. I think Winnipeg gets to claim her right. Chantel Kreviasik, Winnipeg gets to claim her just an unbelievable performer, obviously. And uh, but but also the outpouring of, of folks just like us, average ordinary folks, the non celebrities. And that includes emails to this show. And we're going to be sharing these with you, not just through today's show, but through this week. Tanya, uh, a real talker, made the suggestion yesterday as part of our positive reflections. We do that every Monday presented by Kubi Energy. And Tanya's reflection was essentially noting this outpouring of support for Julie and people indicating the, the impact that she's having on their lives. And Tanya invited you through positive reflections to send us your thoughts about Julie. And, and we're going to get into some of these, including right now. Jean Barkley was in touch. She's a counselor out of Innisfail, Innisfail and, and Jean said it's hard to find adequate words to describe Julie. Like so many others, I've not met her in person, but I feel like I know her through Twitter. She has so graciously and bravely shared her story with all of us while at the same time being a fierce advocate and never backing down from her beliefs. Jean says, I shared with Julie my story of going through my husband's sudden cancer diagnosis in a four-month cancer journey, four months from diagnosis to death. Jean says, I know firsthand what she and her family are going through, and it is the most difficult time anybody could ever endure. And we not only need to love Julie and need to love her family, and I know her family and friends will be, will be there for them, as will all of us, but this even needs to happen from afar. Jean says, thanks to Real Talk for having Julie on last week. She looked beautiful, and she spoke eloquently, as always. She's our light, and we must ensure that we continue to carry that light and be her shining stars. That from Jean Barkley. And how beautiful is that? Emmy was in touch with the show. Emmy says, I've been following Julie's journey for about a year now. And, and while I have not yet met her in person, this is a theme through a lot of the emails we've received. I definitely feel connected to her, says Emmy. I really appreciate people who are real, authentically themselves, showing us the good times and the challenging times. Emmy says, in fact, I especially appreciate when people show their humanity julie is one of the most human people i've listened to and learned from in a long time and i appreciate her sharing her journey so openly welcoming both friends and strangers to join her along the way i was sorry to see 
that she's now come to the point in her journey where she's moved into palliative care. But I am so glad to know that we have terrific community resources like Pilgrim's Hospice for Julie and her loved ones to spend their days there and to be and feel supported. Emmy says, I'm sending all my best positive energy toward Julie as she continues her battle with cancer. Amazing. Uh, to let you know this, uh, and it's not my position to announce it, but I will tell you that Real Talk is participating uh, in an initiative that will raise awareness and raise funds for Pilgrim's Hospice, and we'll keep you posted on that and look for your support. And we also have a big announcement coming up um, at the right time. Uh, I want to tease it to let you know that that with Julie's blessing, we've, we've just signed off on something really special, a legacy project, and we'll be telling you about that in days to come. And you're going to have a day on your calendar next June you're going to want to mark. And when I have that ready to tell you, uh, there's going to be a special day where Real Talkers are going to be able to gather in person. And I'm really, really honored that Julie has agreed to put her stamp on it and, and to bless us with that. Rita was in touch. She said, Julie's teaching us all that no matter the fear we're facing, whether it be the apocalyptic feeling of COVID that, that seems infinite or the finite of our own ending, it's in the sharing of our feelings and our emotions and our thoughts. That is the only thing that really matters. The playful seesaw of people listening and talking and sharing can only bring us joy. Rita then has some kind words for the show. and We'll keep those within our team. And then she says, I feel gratitude. She says, you know, when the tick tock of the clock overshadows the silence in the middle of the night. That means it's time for me to read Julie's Twitter or listen to real talk. That from Rita. Ooh. When the tick tock of the clock overshadows the silence in the middle of the night. That's special, Rita. That's incredible. Thanks for that. We'll get to more of your emails. Uh, Sarah Hoyles is keeping an eye on developing news this morning, as well as some of the, the neat things going on in and around us. We tell you that real talk covers news politics and pop culture and, and last night the met gala went down we've got some really cool stuff to talk about there and to show you there but right now i want to remind you if you haven't heard about it yet how cool is this presented by explore edmonton for the very first time in what might actually to be honest with you be the very last time rugby sevens is coming to edmonton the city landed a one-off stop this year uh typically Touching down in the UK, uh-uh. Alberta's capital city playing host this time around the 2021 series. A pair of men's events in Canada, first in Vancouver, then at Commonwealth Stadium right here in Alberta's capital city on the 25th and 26th of September. If you've never been before, here's the deal. It's a party like you've maybe never seen before in sports. Seven players playing seven-minute halves. That's right, seven-minute halves. That's it, an absolute blast. Everybody's wearing costumes, repping their favorite countries, their favorite teams. It's fast, it's fun, and it's for everyone. A dynamic, high-octane style. If you've never checked it out before, this is an amazing opportunity. You can learn more and get your tickets at Canada7s.com. Sponsored by Explore Edmonton. If you're headed out of town, we want to remind you that the team at Jet Set Parking is looking after real talkers. I mean, this is the best deal you're going to find flying out of Edmonton anywhere. All right, so, so maybe you're flying nonstop from Edmonton to Phoenix, Mesa, that new flight beginning September 17th. If so, or on any flight, you can go ahead of time to jetsetparking.com. If you register for any travel by the end of 2022, not this year, by the end of 2022, using the promo code REALTALK, you're going to be able to park for $8 a day. $8 a day with the promo code REALTALK at jetsetparking.com. They're locally owned and you'll love them. 
federal election next Monday, and we've been working hard to bring you perspectives across the spectrum to get different takes from different you know, jurisdictions, different writings across Canada, different age demographics. And of course, then there's the polling that comes into the mix. Our next guest was pushing this out yesterday. How would you vote tomorrow? Ask the team at Abacus Data. And, and here's what Canadians were saying. And here's what Canadians were showing with regards to how the parties are trending. You look at this journey. You've got the liberals and the conservatives fighting it out at the top, oftentimes meeting in the middle, sometimes even crossing over with the liberals losing, the conservatives gaining, and then right back to the way it was the NDP with a, a steady increase, but not really threatening to take the lead. And then, of course, as you might expect, the Bloc Québécois, the Green Party of Canada following behind there, and, and then the People's Party not even on the list. We'll ask our next guest why Tim Powers is vice chair chairman of uh, Summa Strategies, the managing director of Abacus Data, headquartered out of Ottawa. Tim, thanks for making time for us, and welcome to Real Talk. Hey, listen, Ryan, you you, you probably don't know this, but uh, I'm also the past chair of Rugby Canada. What? And we're pumped for your, yes, for your event in Edmonton. I'm glad we're buying ads on your podcast. Hey, so you, you get more bodies out there. It's going to be going to be awesome i've been to a bunch of these tournaments i've seen rugby in the olympics uh you you people in edmonton like high octane big contact like you get in the cfl it's even better so good on you ryan for running that ad well that's very cool and, and we're thrilled to be partnering with them on, on making sure that people have a chance to check it out i've never seen rugby sevens in person but everybody that i talk to that's attended it or that's a huge fan of it that tunes in on tv always talks about how it's at another level of enthusiasm you got these seven minute halves it's it's almost kind of frenetic there's not a lot of downtime in that sport it is it is fast it is hard it is tough it's like watching three on three hockey and it Mm. goes for 14 minutes and you see some phenomenal athletes it's great it's in edmonton we've had a few events in edmonton the city's always been fantastic and unlike the polls which are all deadlocked as you said uh games don't end in ties you have to play for the win I I was thinking to myself, this guy's a veteran strategist, analyst and commentator. I I know he's going to find a segue using sport (laughs) to get into where the parties are polling. Did you take I I kept mine pretty general and unspectacular in analyzing that abacus data there. But would you agree with my assessment to the most part? It's it's conservatives and liberals. I'm not sure if I'd say too close to call, but certainly in the same ballpark with the NDP behind them and leaving people wondering what what they might do, whether they might bounce back from 2019 it's a parking lot right now and everybody's stuck yeah. uh, the conservatives had some momentum beforehand it appeared uh, the last few days they haven't moved the liberals had a little bit of an uptake after the two debates but they now too appear stuck and the ndp's kind of been steady ryan as you, you point out in our polls at 21 and others in the 20s so in the national numbers um you do have that that parking lot effect now what's interesting we can dive down on this a little bit uh, are the regional numbers. So in that poll of yesterday that we put out, the uh, the Liberals had opened up a seven-point lead, I believe it was, in Ontario, and a significant lead in Metro Toronto. You'll know why that matters, 50 seats in that Metro Toronto area. Uh, the province is the largest in terms of uh, seats available, over 120, and the Liberals had a bit of a lead um, in Quebec as well. Now, that our Quebec data is okay, um, but I like to look at Quebec pollsters to see what is happening. So those two below-the-line numbers suggest that oh, even though the score is tied at the top level, 
The election were held today, and Lord knows we still have five wonderful days of this Salinas to go. The Liberals would probably win another minority today. Mm. Now, you know, uh, I, I think what most people are expecting is that there will be a couple bombs that drop over the next few mm. days, right? How much does that play in the fact that that probably every party has the pin pulled on at least one grenade and they're deciding when to deploy it? Five days, this will probably be, I would imagine, wrapping up in somewhat dramatic fashion or at least as dramatic as the, the campaigns can make it. Yeah, because it hasn't been very dramatic before. I was writing an article about this this morning. If you could tell me what this election is about, uh, other than Justin Trudeau trying to get another majority and the opposition haven't really given you a reason yet to vote for them, uh, you're a, a wiser man than I know. You probably are because you're in Edmonton, but I'm a Newfoundlander, so I'll take the, the court on, on being wiser at the moment. But yeah, I, I suspect some bombs will come, but I, I don't know what else the Conservatives can drop on Trudeau after the blackface stuff of last time. And Aaron o tool is a pretty um, clean living fellow as well. So who knows where we're going to go, but you already saw today uh, the Globe and Mail coming after Trudeau for uh, a deal he did with a Chinese publisher, um, others coming after O'Toole still on vaccination issues and allowing candidates to campaign at seniors homes when they're only partially vaccinated. The one thing I'd say, Ryan, that I haven't said about the poll, and I would encourage people to look at that and look at other polls, of course, is they're still, and this is what I think the Liberals are hanging their hopes on, um, a number of Canadians who really haven't tuned in yet, which again, to you and I and your listeners on Real Talk would seem strange, but that tends to be how it is. And if you, like I did, watched a bit of Monday Night Football, uh, you'll see now the advertising is kicking up on live sporting venues to try events, to try and move some of these people who may not have tuned in yet. Do you I mean, how much does, you know, when when people perceive that the election is about nothing uh, or, or if people don't really quite feel as compelled to vote, they won't. And I've seen a lot of people forecasting voter apathy as, as maybe one of the storylines of this. Does that benefit a particular party or do we have to go province or riding by riding? I mean, how do you suss that out? Well, safe. In 2015, you would have said that would have benefited the conservatives because of the much vaunted conservative get out the vote machine identification of voters. I think the liberals have gotten better at that now. So maybe that's a toss up. I, th I think one of the factors that this pandemic election presents, which is sort of fascinating, is the lineup at uh, voting booths. I've heard I, I don't know what it's like in Edmonton, but I know from some of the advanced polls here in Ottawa, people have had to line up for 30 minutes. They've been slow processing. So if, you know, I haven't advanced, I haven't done my advanced poll yet. I can't anymore, which means I have to go vote. I'll stay in the line. But if you're going there Monday and you, you may be a determined voter, are you going to wait for 45 minutes? Are you going to wait? I mean, that that's an unpredictable element to this. Also, what happens with variants over the weekend, right? You you guys are living through it in Alberta. It's happening here in Ontario. Does it scare people away? Because what I heard yesterday about mail-in balloting is only about 600,000 were request, requested. The chief electoral officer had originally thought there may be 5 million. Um, if you know, if some of that vote is lost between not getting mail-in ballots and not going, that could have an impact on the election, most certainly. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, you, you wrote a uh, a few years back through Concordia University uh, out east uh, about remaking the Conservative Party for a new generation of conservatives. Uh, is Aaron O'Toole on his way to doing that? 
He's trying to. Um, and, and I think the test of the remake will be one, if he how how he is dealt with by his own party after this campaign. So if Mr. O'Toole wins a slim majority, which is possible, which I don't think people thought was possible during the, when the campaign started, because Justin Trudeau was, you know, apparently going to show up and it'd be game over for everybody else. So O'Toole's had a good campaign right now. He's tied. If he wins a slight minority, then I think the path of remaking in the manner in which he's laid it out in this campaign will continue. If he holds Trudeau to a minority, he may still get the opportunity to move forward, but I suspect there will be lots of pressure to say, well, if you had taken a different policy approach here or a different policy approach there, then then you may have won. And that will be an internal thing. But I, I still stand by what I said. The Conservative Party, if it wants to win compelling victories, needs to continue to um, frame itself, brand itself in contemporary terms, not the terms of 15 years ago when Stephen Harper was the leader. We're talking, uh, if you're just tuning in, uh, live streaming this on uh, on our Mixler audio app to Tim Powers, a political strategist. Uh, Tim, do you say SUMA or SUMA strategies, right? Is that what you say? I know you might think looking at me, you might say SUMA wrestler, but oh, it's SUMA, 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 Suma strategies. strategies and managing director of Abacus Data. Get this. So we've got this uh, amazing group that joins us live every morning and they, they chime in on our YouTube chat. Uh, Kimberly says that she stood in line two and a half hours yesterday wow. to advance wow. vote. Hawes uh, says his daughter waited in line for an hour and a half to vote yesterday. He says that doesn't look like apathy to me. Uh, Hawes fist pound to your daughter. That's awesome. Love to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> Get this from Heidi. Heidi says it's funny. It's funny, Tim, like in the way that it'll make you cry funny. But it's funny, says Heidi, how disconnected people are, says our member of parliament lost his debit card in a parking lot a week ago. And somebody posted on the community Facebook group asking anybody know who this guy is i found his card that's her member of parliament which i don't think is a ringing endorsement uh i'm well, not no, look brian don't be too hard on people who lose debit cards i'm up to number 80 oh, i mean pal. you know i leave them all over the friggin place but yes not knowing who the mp was but let's not slag people who lose their debit cards. no this is this is not a shot at people who lose if i uh, were to be calling out people that lose their keys, lose their wallets, lose their debit cards. Uh, I would be the biggest hypocrite on planet Earth. So I won't get into it. Hey, this, this so this data that you should, and people can follow you on Twitter and people can check out uh, at Powers Tim or at some of strategies that, that that data that you had out there yesterday. Um, I made a note that you've got you know the liberals, you've got the conservatives, the NDs, the Greens, and the Block, and the PPC nowhere to be found. Is is it because their polling doesn't meet the minimum threshold numbers wise to make the chart or is it because you don't want to dignify the campaign or what's the deal <laughs> it's not about dignifying the campaign i'm i'm honestly not sure why our numbers are a little lower with the ppc uh sometimes it can be the type of poll that you do we use um, an online based sampling service so that that may be part of the reason we don't pick up the depth of ppc i mean i think it's obvious if you look at other polls, the PPC are, and we have them higher than they were uh, in, in our own polls, that they are rising. Are they rising enough and concentrated enough in their rise that they will either win a seat, and Bernier would be the most obvious one, the leader in, in Quebec, which didn't win last time, or do they chip away at um, others? Uh, one of the questions posed around here is, does the PPC rise? cut into conservative seats. And, and again, 
I, I, I don't have enough real-time data and don't have the 2019 data in front of me to know how legitimate that argument is because the PPC seems to have pockets everywhere. And as you well know from covering politics for years, you only have a pocket of, you know, 100 supporters in one riding and the conservative candidate in, say, in Alberta wins by 2,000 votes. It's not going to have an impact. But does it have an impact in uh, Ontario or, or, or other places to be determined? One of the fast, most fascinating things about this campaign is how the PPC have continued to, through their rhetoric and approaches, which I'm no fan of, uh, but clearly there are people who are, uh, continue to get attention. Um, but I think the test of their durability is going to be, can they win a seat and where do they go from here? But certainly there's an audience out there for what uh, Maxime Bernier and his lieutenants are preaching. Yeah, no kidding. It always blows my mind. And we've had several pundits point this out, how close Bernier came to, to winning the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. And you wonder, although I do have a speculation. I, I mean, you're the guest, not me. I won't go off and rattle off on these tangents. Sure, but sure, you can do whatever like, the hell you I, I guess you're right. My, you know, my, my thought is that had Maxime Bernier won the leadership of the Conservative Party, we would not be seeing this side. We wouldn't be seeing this element. Like I, in my mind, I believe him to be, and I don't know him personally, and this may be an unfair comment, but I'm calling it what I see it as him as an opportunist, uh, seeing an open spot on the spectrum to continue his political career, to, to maintain some sort of a position of influence and fundraising, and and to attempt, I guess, to be a player on the on the right side of the political spectrum in Canada. But I'm not convinced that the People's Party is much more than Maxime Bernier, right? I mean, like, you know, not that I can say I know every candidate in every riding, but there's not, a, you know, there's not kind of a, a lieutenant there. There's not a number two, really. Yeah, there isn't an obvious heir apparent. Maybe some emerges. And, and again, maybe that's because the rest of us are not fully in the uh, the bowels. Not that one would ever want to be in anybody's bowels, but particularly those of the PPC uh, <laughs> at the moment. Uh, but, I, but I do agree on your theory of fit of peak uh, that Maxime had. I, I've known him a li little bit over the years. I mean, the, the great ironic thing, which I'm sure your listeners appreciate on, on Real Talk, and I'm sure you've educated to them, uh, them about this, I should say, is, you know, you have three leaders who fathers were all well-known politicians. I mean, uh, so when they try and run away from their history, I, I find it funny. Of course, Prime Minister Trudeau had another Prime Minister Trudeau, Aaron O'Toole, had a well-known MPP, as they call them here in Ontario. His dad, well-liked and well-regarded in the Mike Harris government. Maxine Bernier's father was a senior cons progressive conservative member of parliament under, uh, under Brian Mulroney. So when they all fight about who's less elitist it is kind of comical we had a chance to talk to to green leader anime paul uh, just mm. i guess it was probably days before hay Hoyle's days maybe maybe a week before everything started going totally sideways for her and and she's run what i would say at least to her personally i believe she's portrayed herself to be dignified uh despite all of the nonsense that, that's going on around here what does the green party look like after this election yeah, excellent question, because, look, she was campaigning in PEI yesterday, for example, in PEI, the Greens are in opposition in New Brunswick. They have a bit of a toehold provincially, you know, they do in B.C. as well. So they're, they're not dead if she's gone. But I think they're still in this place of figuring out what they want to be on the national stage. When Elizabeth May was there. And, and I mean this complimentary. It was the cult of Elizabeth. And yeah. she had a profile that she brought that helped the Greens. 
Miss Paul has inherited, it, it seems, a lot of people who aren't fans of hers, maybe hangovers from Elizabeth, and it's making it difficult. And you can't just transfer one cult personality leader to another. So I don't know where they go after uh, after this, Ryan, but they're going to have to do a lot of soul searching if they want to stay relevant. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing on that abacus data, just to take it back to that and ground it, 2019, we asked had, who had the most compelling plan and, and perspective on climate change. It was the Green Party. We have asked something similar in that survey. Green Party were fourth, fourth beyond the conservatives. So that tells you if your raison d'etre was to fight climate change, and you can argue they've had some success there, and that's your brand, and now you're graded fourth among Canadians. Oh, you got a lot of work to do. That's the first that I heard of, of those results, Tim. That's got to be, if you're in the conservative war room, if you're Aaron O'Toole in particular, who I think put his neck out a little. I mean, I'm not going to pat him on the back yeah. for doing it. He's got to do it. The expectation is right. that he does it. Uh, but he did several months ago saying we're going to price carbon. Here's what our plan looks like. And and people may take shots you know, around whether it was ambitious enough or not. But that's not the point. Yeah. The point is he went on the record with a plan. Uh, you got to be pretty encouraged if you're in that war room that you're pulling ahead of the greens with regards to voters perception of, uh, you know, basically implementable climate policy. Mm hmm. Yeah, and, and, and I think he is. And I mean, and he took a fair bit of heat, as you know, in his own party at the party policy convention. Uh, he didn't get the vote he wanted on recognizing climate change as a threat. And he's rolled it out. And I, I mean, that's the real interesting thing, I think, if, about this election, that climate really hasn't been the issue it should be, because now it's almost as if a consensus is formed that all the major parties have some form of carbon pricing platform. And if you're in Alberta or you're where I'm from, Newfoundland and Labrador, which you can see the beautiful painting behind me, um, you know, uh, the transitioning out of those economies is still a big issue. And there's hardly been any talk about that during this campaign. Yeah, no kidding. What's what's an issue you're surprised? I mean, I, I expected this to be a, a campaign uh, for the most part. I mean, I, I, I sort of I, I'll be honest, I expected more from everybody. I, yeah. I, sound, I sound like a teacher that comes back after the substitute was there for a week and everybody ran. You know, I expected more from you. Uh, but but in particular, you expected the liberals to come in with a big hammer i mean really and and this isn't a fair way let me be candid here it's not really a fair way to assess it but they had the opportunity to to leverage hundreds of billions of dollars uh spent on the covid19 response almost as campaign funds in the sense of hey did we do an all right job through this did we look out for you did we have your back we're talking about child care these guys don't want it and 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 you know sweep to a majority government but it almost seems like the party that called the election is is the party that was most surprised by it and and i and i and i still haven't really been able to sort that out everybody's going to be curious to see what happens in Quebec. And there's, there have been a couple dust-ups, in particular the debates uh, with Yves-Francois Blanchet and, and Justin Trudeau. Of course, the Conservatives have seen some success in Quebec in past, and when they have, it's been good news for them. So how does Quebec go this way around, do you think? Uh, it's a very good question. So immediately after the debate, the Liberals had gotten a little bit of a bump. Now, there were some rumblings out of Quebec yesterday, and I, I would encourage people to look at the Leger and Leger poll, which I have not seen yet today, because Leger, as you know, is a Quebec-based pollster. Uh, there were suggestions that that Leger poll would show that the Bloc um, have had a bit of an uptick, and that all coming from the question posed by the moderator in the debate that was framed by the Bloc Quebecois afterwards as being 
anti-Quebec. Um, and Mr. Legault's kind of the premier's head, of, and he's the most influential figure in Quebec. Last week, he said, you know, uh, I don't want a liberal government. I could probably work with the Conservatives. Seems he's changed his tack over the weekend and gone back to the bloc. I know as it relates to the Liberals, if they want to hold their minority and possibly get to their majority, they have to hold around the 35 seats they have in Quebec and they'd like to win some more. But from what I understand, so you got a Newfoundlander interpreting Quebec to an Alberta audience, what great Canadian moment this is. Um, there's still a lot of uh, uncertainty in Quebec as to where it would go, but the only two parties in the game are the Liberals um, and the uh, and the Bloc at the moment. I said Straya on our live chat says, why Watching the leaders debate the other night, uh, Anime Paul was the only party leader that didn't actively piss me off. So I guess that's <laughs> I guess that's a win for her. Uh, Jillian says uh, Ryan's bang on. Bernier is an opportunist who becomes what he yeah. needs to survive. He was a Quebec separatist and then he became a Canadian patriot to try to lead the conservatives. And now he's an anti-vaxxer, uh, which is an interesting uh, and, and I think accurate take on that. Uh, Dwayne has a question for you. And Tim, we've, we've asked this out of almost every guest because I think that sure. it's relevant right now. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're in Alberta, typically, uh, you know, 2019 I covered that election obviously in april jason kenney and his united conservatives sweep to victory i mean raising a ton of dough more than a million votes for the first party in alberta's history to do that and now alberta's premier quite frankly nowhere to be found and uh, polling the lowest of any provincial leader in the country uh, Dwayne's wondering uh, how do you think that provincial conservative governments uh, he mentions Alberta, Manitoba and Ontario. Of course, don't have to tell this audience that Brian Pallister resigning as premier of Manitoba a short time ago. Wonders, uh, Dwayne, how do you think that may or will affect the federal conservatives chances? Do people draw a direct line there like they do oftentimes between Rachel Notley and Jagmeet Singh? Well, in Ontario, you'll know the history well, Ryan, as I'm sure your uh, your audience does, that there is this weird thing in Ontario. I mean, I'm not an Ontarian, and I could never understand this province. But when they have a Liberal Party in uh, nationally, they tend to have a Conservative Party in provincially, and it's worked that way more often than not. Doug Ford, like Jason Kenney, has stayed out of this election campaign. Uh, there have been a few very brief moments of dust dust ups, but nothing severe. There's reporting out here that he and the prime minister achieved an accord that they wouldn't get into it. Because if you remember the 2019 campaign, Ford was a target for uh, Justin Trudeau and Jason Kenney was an advocate for then leader Andrew Scheer. Neither Ford nor Kenney are found at the moment. And the, the one place where I think so to answer the question, I'm getting like a politician just rambling without answering. I, I think in New Brunswick, uh, it's the one place where there is a conservative premier. They're regarded as a pretty good and stable administration that could actually help uh, O'Toole and Tim Houston, the new progressive conservative premier of Nova Scotia. There may be some carryover from his recent win to Aaron O'Toole because in the Atlantic, the two areas where they're talking about seat change, where the conservatives could win are Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, both held by still well-liked provincial premiers who've also kept their heads down, but have very similar organizations and have not uh, deliberately created any conflict. There's that, uh, you know, Edmonton's another interesting case study where the, the, yeah. the city will send all conservative members of parliament to Ottawa, uh, save one. Heather McPherson uh, in, in Linda Duncan's old writing, in an NDP writing, this orange little island. And then in, in the cons in the provincial election, all MLAs save one NDP. Uh, to the provincial legislature, Casey Madu, Alberta's justice minister, solicitor general, the only conservative MLA mm -hmm. in the city. And it's, it's I, I still to this point have not been able to wrap my mind around how that works. But but I always think it's pretty well, interesting. It goes, 
It goes back to something you said earlier, and it's about what this election is about. So you remember the prime minister tried to argue and he didn't do it very well, that this was the most important election since 1945. And he's not been able to build that thesis in a way, at least we've seen with the voters. And while the opposition leaders have jumped on nobody wants the election, they also haven't built themselves an off ramp to say, OK, well, damn it, it's happening anyway. And here's why you need to choose me. They're they're making uh, making arguments. But they don't seem to be be sitting. I, I will tell you back to, to rugby. And I was at a, a Canadian rugby game last weekend uh, in St. John's, Newfoundland, and talking to normal human beings, as I, I like to call them, little rugby players. Uh, and the thing I heard, the, the two things that I heard that I think capture this election well, and remember, Newfoundland is a liberal bastion, six out of seven liberal MPs. First thing was, we're not happy with Justin Trudeau. We don't know, you know, we're not really keen about this election, and we're a bit angry. Followed by, but... But we don't know if we can trust or if we like Aaron O'Toole. And I think that is the conundrum simplified that is playing out in the polls now in different regions. People are mad at Trudeau, but they're not sure if they can go to O'Toole. And one of our bits of data that is always very instructive is we ask, who do you think will win the election? And in every poll that we have done since the election has begun, everybody still says the liberals. Hmm. So we may be back to a devil, you know, scenario in an election. Not a lot of people are enthused about. Let me ask you this uh, in closing, Tim. Certainly appreciate your time this morning. Uh, I had an opportunity to check in with uh, Treaty 8 Grand Chief Ardernoski a short time ago Mm -hmm. on the show and and a scathing and uh, and. I think understand. As a matter of fact, I think they hit the nail on the head on a lot of things. An open letter, essentially, to to political parties, candidates asking where the meaningful action on reconciliation is on on, on the different facets of indigenous uh, First Nation sovereignty and a great conversation. People can obviously find it in our podcast archive, our YouTube archive. Um, I, I think this is. I want to ask a two prong question to you in closing. Sure. Are, are you surprised at at or, or maybe you know, take issue with with my question? Maybe maybe your perception will be different than mine, but a lack of really meaningful substance on so-called indigenous issues or on reconciliation, the party platforms, and also on behalf of the electorate. I don't see a ton of people demanding action from parties. I haven't seen it a part of the national conversation. This just a couple of months after, I mean, if if you and I talk about 215, everybody knows exactly what we're talking about. 751, everybody knows what we're talking about. Are you surprised? Sadly not, uh, because I think that the national leaders are terrified to wade into a substantive discussion around reconciliation for fear of stepping the wrong way on it, given rightly the emotional weight that the country has been feeling and most particularly indigenous peoples over everything we went through in the summer. So I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised at all by that, Ryan. And again, we, you know, we give good lip service in non-election time to reconciliation and you can understand why indigenous leaders must be as frustrated as hell because nobody's talking about it because they're afraid to talk about it bang on tim powers as always a political strategist vice chairman of summer strategies managing director of abacus data thanks for making time for us uh, really appreciate it and you sell more of those rugby tickets there, uh, Ryan, Canada Sevens at Edmonton. You'll all love it. Hey, Thank you. People know where they can find it. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate that. Sure. I, th- I, I think the client might be happy about that, too. Rugby Sevens. There you go. Yeah, we're excited to be partnering with them, and you'll be hearing more about that uh, coming up this week. Also, of course, our election coverage uh, will continue. The federal election coming up uh, as if you don't know real talkers next Monday, that's September 20th. Uh, we love this tweet that we got. Uh, we always love real talkers when you're supporting our partners. 
uh, including the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. This was absolutely fantastic yesterday. You can always hit us up, our official account, at RealTalkRJ. That's our hashtag, too. You know that. And this was from Lisa, who said she's blaming us. We don't mind, though, Lisa. We'll take responsibility. She says, this was your fault, Real Talk. A pumpkin pie blizzard on the left, the pecan pie blizzard on the right. Lisa says they're both so tasty. I love that. The pecan pie blizzard treat, the crumbly brown sugar pie pieces, the crunchy pecans, the creamy caramel, and the world-famous DQ soft serve, the whip topping you saw. The pumpkin pie blizzard treat blends the world-famous soft serve with real pumpkin pie pieces, garnishing it with whip topping and nutmeg for a fall weather favorite. At the Dairy Queens at Palisades, Nomeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road. The question is... Can you, do you say pecan oh, or no. pecan? Pecan. Do people really say pecan? We got an email yesterday saying, Ryan, Ryan, I feel like you're th- saying it wrong. I feel like if you say pecan, you probably say schedule. And you probably talk about people that have really matured. Okay, but do you say Obama or Obama? That's not even a thing. <laughs> That's not even a thing. We'll be at the Dairy Queen, uh, by the way, uh, their check presentation coming up on Saturday. I want to keep mentioning this because they put their money where their mouth is. And so did you, Real Talkers, showing up through the month of August, buying ice cream cones a buck from every cone to the Wakotuin Society. Society, Pardon me, the Wakotuin Society. More than $22,000 raised. That means, you know, that we talked about those retreats that they do for Indigenous women that have survived residential schools and cancer. They said that funding from Real Talkers and everybody else that showed up at the Dairy Queen allows them to put on two full retreats, all in, to cover two full retreats. Just amazing work being done there. The team at Eden Landscaping wants you to know that just because fall is coming, I hate to be saying it, but we all know that that's the truth. This is the real talk here, friends. In our neck of the woods, there's been so much rain lately. This is like the greenest September I've ever seen in my life. There's not a lot of leaves falling. The other day I saw some on the ground. I said, what the hell is this? And then I was like, right, it's like second week of September. I guess this is kind of normal. The team at Eden Landscaping keeps the work going through the year. They're bringing outdoor spaces to life from the conceptual stage. I know because I've gone through this exercise with Mike. My wife, Carrie, and I have. Sit down and just paint a big picture. Like, here's what we like. Carrie has a Pinterest board, and Mike's all over Pinterest. He's like, yeah, that's how people these days coagulate or curate or cultivate or, their dream yards. Or, I know. I decided to stop at three. Or, the, I think the alliterate, the magic of alliteration, typically they say speak in threes. Once you start going for four, you get greedy. So they curate, coagulate, and cultivate. I don't know what's going on right now. That's Your a whole bunch dream of malarkey yard. Right It's a whole there. bunch of malarkey. Your dream space. And for everybody, it's different. Maybe you want a really modern, sleek design. Maybe you're looking for a classic water installation of the big boulders or whatever. I'm a big bull. I love people that have the big boulders in their front. I always have a lot of respect for that. They do it all at Eden Landscaping, and you can check out their amazing work at landscapeedmonton.ca. Uh, through this morning's show, we're going to be reading uh, letters. We're going to be reading emails that we've been uh, receiving about Julie Rohr. It was it was essentially Julie Rohr Day in the city of Edmonton uh, yesterday, unofficially or otherwise. Uh, the force of nature, a dear friend of this show who joined us last week, is uh, is is the recipient of an outpouring of support. Of course, as she describes in the end stage of her cancer journey, Lance. 
sent us this note yesterday, and um, I wanted to get to this before we get back to talking about politics and foreign affairs and Afghanistan. How's this for a perspective check? Lance says, this is a really big week for me. He says, two years ago this week, I was diagnosed with a rare cancer. How rare? It was the first time that the oncologists at the Cross Cancer Institute had ever come across it. He says, at the time I was diagnosed, I was at work uh, and I got a call that said, go straight to the U of A hospital. There's a hematologist and a neurologist waiting to see you. And and Lance says that really messed up the rest of my day. Uh, The first couple of months, uh, bone marrow tests, spinal tests, live nerve tests, fluid tests. He says every kind of diagnostic test you could think of. They couldn't believe that they were seeing this disease. The fact I had it, they said research indicating it's typically found in, in Middle Eastern men in their 30s. He says, I'm not Middle Eastern. I'm not in my mid 30s. And uh, he says, there are those that may even want to debate my manliness. But here I was, says Lance. He says, I went straight from these tests into rounds of chemo and dexamethasone. And he says, injecting myself in the leg a couple of times a day, going to work with central venous lines in my chest and stem cell therapy and a full bone marrow transplant on the horizon. He says, I was given a diagnosis of six months to two years. And as mentioned, that was two years ago this week, says Lance. I spent three weeks alone at the Cross Cancer Institute in November during the peak of the third wave. And let me tell you, those nurses were the difference between my fighting or adopting that sick role. He says, I'm a grown ass man, but there were moments alone at night, sick on chemo, facing an uncertain future uh, that I was in tears. Uh, But what I didn't expect was that those nurses were also emotionally engaged with me. Lance says we leaned hard on a blend of humor and stubbornness, and it just blows my mind to see people now making all this noise outside of health centers and hospitals. He says, I get ignorance. I get fear, but I don't get this shit at all. Lance says, I found that part of uh, the cancer journey so hard because after going into essentially self-isolation and and wiping out, you know, due to chemo, all of my immunities, uh, the whole world kind of went into isolation. And, And as somebody diagnosed with a serious disease that nobody really knew about on top of a pandemic, many days I couldn't even tell what I thought, what I felt or otherwise. A critical disease during a time like this has its own special challenges. Lance says there aren't real support groups, not not real sort of connection or waiting room chats where you can share experiences or support one another walking into a, a closed off hospital after signing consent forms and trying to wrap your mind around risk. Uh, he says having no immunities through all this is a real challenge. He says, but I got to tell you, the staff, these healthcare workers beyond wonderful. He says, thank God for my wife, Deborah, some close supports, my faith. He says, I stumbled across Real Talk, the podcast. He says, I started listening to it sometimes to help pass the nausea. And and he says, there were other times, Ryan, where you made it worse. And then I came across your interview with Julie Rohr last Tuesday, and it almost broke me. It was like so many things that, that I have and had been feeling. She's so courageous. She's so brave, but still alone. Keep in mind through his lens. I mean, this is a guy that's walked miles in the same shoes. 
and listening to her, says Lance, for a moment, I didn't feel alone. I felt like there was somebody that could understand my journey. And I just I'm sure there are more, but I haven't been able to meet them through the course of this pandemic. I felt, thanks to Julie, less alone and I felt stronger. And I want to thank you and most especially Julie for that. Lance says, I'm doing well. And, I, and I'm hoping this week that I can still be looking at a future, whatever that may be. Because when you go through something like this, after the treatment on the road to recovery, you realize that all of your future plans sort of vanished along the way. I know that change is coming for me. Lance says I've worked with government for over three decades, many different departments, many different governments. But but I now, like the rest of us, have a future that's a little less certain. But I am certain of this. There is a future for me and for all of us. Lance says, God bless real talkers. What an amazing email. I picture when we get something like that, this is somebody sitting down and just pouring out their heart and just taking what they're experiencing and putting it into terms that we as an audience as a community can understand and i just want to communicate as best i can lance how much that means to us more emails about julie Rohr and the impact that she's having on this audience on society writ large i think i can say coming up through this show through the rest of this week and i know that next monday's positive reflections will have a strong theme as well you can send us an email anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Of course, you can hit us up on Twitter as well. You know where to find us at Real Talk RJ. We've been talking about Canada's involvement in Afghanistan. And of course, that story over the past number of weeks, pretty dramatic changes. The images have been tough to see as many Afghani citizens have been taking desperate measures to try to flee what they know could be a violent future under Taliban rule. This after American troops pulling out Canadian troops and others following suit. We've been endeavoring to talk to Canadians that have been taking steps to make a difference to quite literally save the lives of Afghani citizens that in many circumstances saved the lives of Canadian diplomats, military personnel and others working as translators, security and what have you. One of those is Scott Gilmore. A friend of this show who happens to be editor-at-large at McLean's, a former Canadian diplomat himself. It's great to see you, and welcome back to Real Talk. Great to be back, Ryan. So how did, how did you get involved in this? I mean, why don't, we, why don't we start by this tweet that you pushed out the other day, which really caught our attention. We actually, it, it kind of filled our hearts in a way. You say, tonight you picked up two Afghan translators. They'll be living with you for a while. You said when they were evacuated out of uh, Kabul, they were given a choice on the tarmac, the States or Canada. So you say we stopped for some... Putin on the way home. That's about as Canadian as it gets. How did this all start? That's right. Well, it goes back a long way. So when I was a diplomat, I was one of the first Canadian officials into Afghanistan after the fall of Taliban. And that led to a very long relationship with the country. I was responsible for opening our embassy there. And then after I left the Foreign Service, I started an NGO there. And it operated for many years. And then I moved on to other things. But what happened two, three weeks ago when Kabul fell is dozens of my former staff and colleagues and friends of friends who were still in Afghanistan began to reach out asking for help. And so I very quickly cobbled together with some of my former colleagues, um, basically a rat line, uh, a mechanism to get some of our former staff and and their families to safety uh, as the Taliban moved into Kabul. And in the process of doing that, I discovered that there was actually a lot of other people doing the exact same thing as me, particularly uh, Canadian vets. And I joined up with uh, the Veterans Transition Network, 
which is a, uh, an NGO that is doing uh, incredible work right now, trying to save hundreds, if not thousands of Afghans who supported uh, the Canadian mission there over the years, Canadian NGOs, the Canadian government, our embassy. And um, it's, it's hard work. There are a lot of people working at it 24-7, but it is working. We are getting people out. As somebody who is who is there, uh, I mean, you have firsthand experience of, of being there after the Taliban fell. What's it like for you personally now to see where things have gone? You know, Ryan, that's a that's a hard question. That's a question that I probably am going to need to grapple with over over whiskey because I haven't really been able to to process it yet because we've been so busy literally working 24-7, finding people, trying to get them papers, trying to get them to safe houses, trying to get them over the border, that I haven't begun to really think through the implications. I mean, Canada, we sent 40,000 soldiers to Afghanistan, uh, not all at once, obviously, but it was our largest military commitment since the Korean War. It was our largest development commitment in Canadian history and probably our largest diplomatic initiative in 60, 70 years. And for all of that to be turned to ashes and not just our efforts, but American efforts and British efforts and the efforts of Afghans as well. I don't know what to say. I, you know, I saw an interview yesterday with uh, General Eikenberry, who was an American general I worked with years and years ago in Afghanistan, who said, quite frankly and simply, that all our sacrifices weren't worth it. And um, I suspect that's the... Um, that's probably the conclusion I'm going to get to. Eventually. Yeah, like like I, I feel like hundreds of thousands or millions of people at varying levels of awareness are are sitting here going, well, what the hell was the point? Like, what was the point of the last 15 years? And 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 to hear someone like you with, uh, you know, a, a professional background, the fact you were there um, in a way. I can't say I'm relieved. That's a horribly insensitive word to use, but it makes me feel less stupid because I'm sitting here. I've been sitting here the whole time going, like, what am I missing? What am I what am I not understanding about this? Yeah, see, this is the dilemma I have in my own mind, because, you know, I, I felt that it was the right thing to do to go in. And the Afghan people did need us. At the Once we, you know, once we removed the Taliban, removed the government, we had a responsibility to help them build up again. But then we mismanaged it. And when I say we, I mean, everybody from like me individually with my work as a diplomat and on various projects, Canada, the coalition, the Americans, the Pentagon, we mismanaged it every step. And so, you know, yes, we should have run into that burning house and tried to put it out. But we carried buckets of gasoline in with us. And so afterwards, do you say, was trying to fight the fire the wrong thing to do or was showing up with Jerry cans the wrong thing. I, okay, so you. I don't have an answer for you. Well, you. So you have. I mean, you can give us here essentially what we might call your professional or informed analysis, but you're also a human being, and you have uh, Afghans that are going to be living with you in your home. Obviously, this is something you took quite personally. Can you describe for us? And we've heard this sort of testimonies from different perspectives of people that served over there in various capacities, how important the Afghans were that worked with them uh, and, and the personal connection that people felt, which I think is translating right now into a real sense of responsibility to do something that in many circumstances would, would equate to saving people's lives. Uh, can you give us your personal sense of how important this is for Canada and Canadians to be stepping up like you are? Oh, yeah, it's 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 critically important. Like, I, I can't think of a of a more sacred bond 
than the fact that, you know, we reached out to the Afghans and then we asked them to help us. And in doing so, we put their lives at risk. You know, whether they were translators for the Canadian forces or working in the Canadian embassy, or in my case, you know, working with me to, to build a charity, they did it with Canadian Maple Leafs on their, on their, you know, on their identity cards, on their business cards. They did it going in and out of Canadian compounds. They made it very clear to everybody around, whether it's in a village or in a city as large as Kabul, that, you know, they were working for us. And so when it all went to shit, I was stunned when I saw the prime minister go into Rideau Hall. You know, I, I don't want to make this political because there's enough blame to go back and forth on all the parties who reigned over this disaster for the last 20 years. But when the prime minister went into Rideau Hall to call an election on the day that Kabul fell, while there was still Canadian diplomats and civilians and Canadian troops on the ground trying to make their way to the airport, and then all of the Afghan families that we were abandoning, and the, we, we abandoned the Gurkhas who were protecting our embassy. I mean, they, thankfully, they've found their way out since then. But yeah, there, there is an absolute personal and national debt that we owe and 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 we need to we can't break faith like like we seem to be doing i'm not uh comparing the the uh like i don't i'm not comparing i'm not saying the same factors are at play or i'm not comparing the governments although you probably could to a certain degree with al-assad but i you know this this kind of reminds me of what we saw in canada with regards to syrian refugees and we saw some countries essentially you know opening up their borders other countries really closing their borders and then of course in, in canada countries like canada and the states everybody wants to know the numbers like how many are we bringing in and i think the average civilian quite frankly scott lacks context of, of really what like how big is twenty five thousand, or what sort of a commitment is fifty thousand, or you know germany says over a million what does that look like the point i'm getting at is that a lot of people would look at the federal government and say what's canada's commitment and then you'd have groups like community groups many faith groups like churches coming together and saying we personally are going to sponsor a family and bring the family over so there's kind of these two avenues that we can discuss. What avenue did you choose and, and how did you make this happen uh, with these Afghans that you'll be hosting? Well, this was almost accidental. So as I mentioned, I got involved. I, I joined up with a group of veterans who were doing and journalists and other NGOs who were doing the exact same thing I was, which was trying to keep our people safe and get them out. And we had a team of Afghans on the ground in Kabul who were sort of leading the effort in terms of setting up safe houses and finding families and getting them papers and that. When it got too hot for them, they were on one of the last groups onto one of the last planes out. And uh, we brought them into uh, Canada and uh, I had space in my house. And so they moved in here and basically set up a 24-7 op center on, on the second floor of my house. Uh, where they're on the phone every day with, like I said, hundreds of Afghans and Afghan families checking on their status, seeing if their applications have been sorted out by the Canadian government, if they have, figuring out how we're going to get them out. Um, they're doing just incredible work. I mean, honestly, they're, they're, they're not yet Canadians. They're, they're on their path to becoming Canadians. But when this is all over, they're, all three of them, I'm going to be nominating for an Order of Canada because it's uh, it's amazing what they've been doing. Can you describe for us or take us in you know, behind the curtain uh, some of the conversations you've been having, some of the things they've been saying? I would imagine it, like everything's not hunky-dory, right? They've, they've probably left some loved ones behind. Their, their hearts are probably, I would imagine, still in their throats a little bit. Yeah, I, I don't, 
Yeah, I, I don't want to speak on their behalf. And by the way, I would love for them to come on your show when the dust settles. Right now, they they can't do that yet because they do have family that are still back there. And, uh, and, and so for security reasons, we have to uh, keep them anonymous. But yeah, they've had some really tough conversations. You know, when the... When they were faced with getting on that last plane, some of their family members weren't with them. And so they had a choice, you know, get on a flight out or wade back into the city uh, for a, a fate unknown. So we're working really hard. And I have to give credit where credit's due to Canadian officials, particularly our diplomats in the region, um, to get some of these family members out and to focus on all of those translators and 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 fixers and employees who have helped Canada over the years, um, you know, find a, find a way to safety. This is uh, something I think that'll, that, that, you know, people will start to understand more and more as time goes on. It's, it's interesting timing, you know, and, and though the, uh, the liberals, you know, insist, especially I think on this file, at least right around that August 31st deadline, the liberals, Justin Trudeau, assuring people, Mark Arno and I saw others talking about it, that, listen, this work is still being done, despite the fact that efforts are, you know, pedal to the metal on the campaign trail. But it is kind of interesting timing, isn't it? That, that you know, who will govern uh, after September 20th is, is kind of up in the air to a certain degree. What does the federal government's job look like? What is, in your mind, the federal government's mandate look like after the dust settles on this election? Well, whoever's in charge in Ottawa is going to have to work really hard to push the Canadian civil service to move a little faster. Um, Canada is very, very good at governance. We've sorted out peace order and good governance. You can take a look at pretty much any indicator and Canada is a pretty damn nice place to live. The one thing Canada doesn't do well is crises. When, when the boat starts to rock, uh, it takes us a long time to, to realign and settle our course. And that's what's happening right now in Ottawa. The civil service is struggling to catch up. We're hoping today there's going to be some new policy announcements about how they're going to speed up the, the, uh, the provision of, of visas to these Afghans that have been left behind. But whether it's Tories or Liberals, they're going to have to come back to Ottawa. They're going to say, OK, what's left to be done? How come we're not doing it faster? What, do you, what resources do you need to, to make it happen? And it simply comes down to project management, crisis management. And honestly, whether you're liberal or Tory, history tells us our politicians are not great at crisis management. Why do you think that is? Like, is, is, that, is, such a, is that a culture? It's such a safe place to live. Yes. I mean, yeah. come on. If you, like, I grew up in Sherwood Park. So growing up in Sherwood Park, I didn't really have to worry about how to, you know, clear a, a, a checkpoint or how to, how to deal with, you know, a mined road or something like that, because it's the safest place to live. And it's the same with Canada. We, we don't have crises here. It's, it's the sleepiest country in the world because we can sleep. And so when you suddenly have somebody banging on the door, when you have a crisis, when there's a house on fire, good Lord, it takes us a long time to get our act together. Just like we've seen with COVID. I mean, we're all jumping up and down now, so happy with our uh, vaccination rates, except, of course, in Alberta. And, you know, sorry. Mm -hmm. But the rest of the country, we've got this great, huge high vaccination rate. But we didn't eight months ago. Eight months ago, we were behind the entire Western world because we were so slow to get our act together. And then eventually we did. And so it's the exact same thing as Afghans. We've been incredibly slow as a country to get our act together. It's continuing to accelerate. Hopefully, by the time this election's over, we'll be hitting a pace where we're getting people out every day. And whoever's in charge is going to make, make sure that accelerates. 
We talked to Elise Mills from Sussex Strategy yesterday, and she was arguing that the, the people's perception of Canada and the blue helmets and, the, you know, the kind of the peacekeeping role. I don't remember the words she used exactly. What did she say? Do you remember, Sarah? Like sort of like Nonsense. The, the, what? <laughs> I mean, okay, yeah, yeah, basically, uh, yeah. She sort of found some gentle way to call it bullshit, uh, but you know, almost, yeah. So, I, I suppose is that your one-word answer? Yeah, you know, listen, I'm proud to be Canadian. I've spent my career overseas and working in some of the more difficult places in the world, and there are very few occasions when we've showed up and walked the talk. Um, you know, there was a there was a few years there in Afghanistan. We were we have an occasion in places like Haiti once in a while. But for the most part, Canada is AWOL. And, uh, you know, and, and this election actually, I think, illustrates why that's the case. There's been almost no question about foreign policy in any of the debates or in any of the interviews. And none of the parties have any sort of foreign policy chops. I mean, even, uh, you know, Trudeau has been prime minister for five years. He doesn't know the first thing about foreign policy. And it's because he doesn't need to. It, it's Canadians don't care. We, we, like I said, we live in a safe neighborhood. We're protected by three oceans. And, you know, the United States. So we don't need to. So is but is this is this the way moving forward and and, and even bigger? I mean, I'll, I'll recognize that 45 is not in the White House anymore either. But but Donald Trump had his own thoughts it was very clear about everything from NATO to the United Nations. I'll acknowledge that he doesn't hold the old Oval Office anymore. But we've seen that theme kind of developing maybe less of an appetite for international cooperation. Or am I just cherry picking storylines and trying to lazily put together a narrative here? No, that's my job as a as a magazine. Thank columnist. you. Yes, thank you. But I, I actually I think there might be something to what you're saying. You know, the the disruption that Trump brought to the White House and to the Western Alliance was was actually a really good wake up call for Ottawa. And I have seen a change in attitudes here. We suddenly realized, oh wait a second, maybe we can't always rely on the United States. Maybe we can't rely on NATO. Maybe EU is not as stable as we think, or the United Nations or the World Trade Organization. And so that's forced us to be a little bit more muscular overseas. But again, that's a that's a, an attitude shift that I've seen amongst senior officials and senior diplomats, not necessarily amongst the political classes, because every whether you know every cabinet minister, every prime minister, every member of parliament, the thing that matters most to them is getting reelected for the most part. And you're not going to get reelected because you've got a really smart WTO policy. I want to, if it's okay, get a little bit personal with you. I was I was recalling to our audience as we teed up the show this morning that you and I have spoken several times over the years about your personal political journey, and uh, and and I and I recalled these. I don't remember what you called them, but they were kind of like town halls, but they were super casual ones where you were going right. across the country, um, doing what if if you had it as working as a diplomat, a security detail, they would have told you you can never do this, Scott, which is announce what pub you're going to and then set up shop there for three hours and offer to buy everybody their first round because you wanted to get conversation going um, essentially about the future of small C conservatism in Canada. And and if I remember correctly, you were kind of looking to determine if there was such a thing as progressive conservatism anymore. Yeah. Uh, where are you at yeah. on that journey? I mean, it's I want to check in with you a couple times a year. <laughs> uh, you've caught me on a very cynical phase of that journey. Um, let me let me illustrate why from the perspective of an Albertan who moved to Ottawa. Um, so I, I did do that cross Canada tour and had those conversations and it, and it sort of snowballed, you know, it started off with a couple dozen people at a pub in Halifax and ended up with three, 400 in a, in a, in a uh, auditorium in, uh, in Vancouver. And along the way, it started getting a lot of press attention and, 
the conservative party, the conservative bigwigs, they did not like it. I mean, obviously, they, I mean, they saw it somehow as a threat, like I was going to set up some sort of splinter party, which, of course, I, I would never do. But the, just the, the idea that there was a conservative out there who was unhappy with the conservative party was anathema. You know, there, there's nobody more cursed than the, uh, you know, the religious, um, you know, somebody who, who breaks faith with, with the party or, or, or your religion. And so there was a lot of really animated anger towards me. And nobody was as angry at me, at least in the, in the pages of the newspaper, as much as Aaron O'Toole, who was like an opposition backbencher, I think, at that time. And like publicly angry just, with you? Oh, public angry. Like, well, this is, this, is, this is the point I wanted to make your listeners is that every time there was a newspaper article, what I was doing, the journalist would go to Aaron O'Toole, who'd sort of self-appointed himself as, as my number one critic and would just accuse me of not really being a conservative, you know, would, would bring up my personal relationships with liberals, would say that, you know, I didn't knock on enough doors, like really aggressive in the, in the, in the, the papers. And on radio shows, he would have his like campaign staff call in to to attack me it was, it was nuts and then in the midst of this i'm going i'm changing planes i think in like winnipeg and i bump into him i've never met the man in face to face in my life he comes up gives me a warm handshake says it's great to meet me you know interested in what i'm doing we should get together for a beer sometime and walks away and i'm thinking god this is so classically ottawa they're just all full of shit. you know with what they what they're they scream at each other across the the aisle in the parliament and then they go for drinks with each other afterwards or they stand up and make accusations that they never believe they go and they give interviews that 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 they're just performative and you know there's nobody that's that's that is uh, can be um more guilty of this than of course our prime minister and then our leader of the opposition who's running against them is is a second is a close second so yeah i've grown a little cynical over the years so you, you uh, i'm tweeted- not conservative this time you're not voting conservative this time? Yeah, but I don't know who the hell I'm voting for. I mean, oh. unfortunately, the block isn't, isn't running a candidate in my riding. So. Well, you, you tweeted uh, a few days ago uh, from at Scott underscore Gilmore. Make sure you give Scott a follow. Uh, you've been a little preoccupied during this election. You say you just checked in and it seems your ballot choices are A, says he'll do everything but won't do anything. B, doesn't believe in anything. And C wants to do all the things, but has no plans for any of the things. And then you ask if you got that right. No. Not not the <laughs> most was... inspirational analysis we've seen. No, no. But you know what was very funny and informative about that little smart-ass tweet is that all the liberal partisans slammed me for suggesting that Justin Trudeau isn't going to do anything that he says he's going to do, which made me think, well, why did you think I was referring to him? And then all the all the conservative partisans attacked me for suggesting that Aaron O'Toole doesn't believe anything. But I never mentioned Aaron O'Toole's name at all in there. And then, of course, the NDP knew exactly who I was talking about with with, with you know choice number C. So there is some truth to my my cynical snark. Well, if at least the partisans think so. If if you're an NDP partisan, I'm going to sit there and go, well, hey, at least he recognized we want to do all the things. Right. I mean, that's kind of a compliment, yeah. right? With Pharmacare yeah. and guaranteed basic income or at least rent subsidies, which might not be the preferred way of me interpreting that that policy. But but I mean, all the things that you would have thought that Jagmeet Singh and the NDP could have done in propping up this liberal minority. If, if we see another minority government and if it happens to be a liberal minority, maybe it gives the NDs an, an, another swing at it. Are you surprised that there wasn't as much cooperation? No, no, I'm not. And, 
And just to just to roll back a second, you know, I I love coming on your show, but I'm always so cynical when I'm on your show, and and I don't want to leave your listeners with the impression that that politics is all about cynicism. I mean, there are some incredibly good people in both sides of the of, of the aisle here, and it's because there's two types of people that come to Ottawa. And I, I just wrote a column about this that that ended up being uh, getting a lot of uh, of traction amongst our readers where I, I made the point that there's two types of people that come to Ottawa. There's the people that want to be somebody and the people who want to do something. You know, there are, there are people who they were involved in student politics in high school and they were involved with the conservative club and university. And the very first thing they did out of university was join the, you know, work for some MP here. And then they ran for office as soon as they could. And Aaron O'Toole is, is, an, is an example of that. Justin Trudeau is an example of that. Uh, these are people who, you know, they probably run for any party they want. All they want is to be important. They want to be somebody. And then there are the people who are frequently naive, who come to Ottawa because they want to change something. They're really concerned about climate change or they're concerned about tax policies. They give up their jobs. They sacrifice their families. They, they strive against the odds. They come to Ottawa, and if they're really, really lucky, they get elected to government. And if they're super lucky, they get they become a cabinet minister. And if they're incredibly lucky, they become a cabinet minister on the file that they care about. And then frequently they discover that they can't get anything done. And so they're the first ones to leave. And so Ottawa just basically gets filled up with all of these, the first category, the people who want to be somebody versus want to do something. But my point to your listeners and your viewers is that on everybody's ballot, no matter what riding you in, there's going to be somebody on there who's in it for the right reasons. And they might not be with the party that you believe in. You know, they might be with the Greens, the Conservatives, the Liberals, and, you know, you, you never would give them a second thought. You might not agree with all their policies, but they're sincere. You know, they're not there to take shots at everybody else. They're not preening. They're not taking the selfies. They're actually like policy wonks or they're, they're sincere Canadians who think that they, you know, Canada can be a little bit better in one way or another. You know who you're, you, you, as you're saying this, you know who's popping in to my mind? I'm thinking of a specific member of parliament. I, I'm thinking out of none of it of Mumalak Kakak, who is this inspiring, yes. Yes. Uh, incredible yes. human. But she announced that she's not she's not seeking reelection. And essentially, I mean, the, the, the yeah. gist of her reason publicly has been that she doesn't feel like there's a place for her on Parliament Hill and she doesn't feel like she's being taken seriously. And I just yeah, it was it was demoral. It was deflating to see it. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're you're right. And, and you know, I could name two or three from each party and a lot of former politicians from from all the parties who, you know, they showed up, they tried, they left. But, you know, if more of them show up, if more Canadians go into the ballot box and they don't vote for the prime minister, they don't vote for the party, but they vote for their member of parliament and they pick the member of parliament who they think really is trying their best and is going to go to Ottawa and is going to actually read the bills and is actually going to try to negotiate in good faith and is going to work with the civil service and is going to actually listen to the constituents. That's what this country needs. If we had more of those, if we had people like that leading our national parties, country would be in a much better place than it is right now. And the good news is it's democracy. Your listeners, your viewers, they can make it happen. Mm. Just find the good people. 
Forget about the parties. And, and by the way, I, I wanted to say, I don't think you come on here and you're cynical. I think you come on here and <laughs> you deliver on our promise, which is the title of the show, which is Real Talk. And I appreciate it. Uh, I, I want to thank you for your time, Scott. I don't want to take your whole morning. Let me ask you this. And, and this is putting you on the spot, which you've never really seemed to mind in past. Uh, this isn't even a report you released. You just retweeted Max Roser just a short while ago. And I, I think this is interesting. It just caught my eye right this minute. On your Twitter, since the 2015 Paris Agreement, 76% of planned coal power plants have been scrapped. That IPCC report that came out a while ago was uh, troubling, to say the least. Are you surprised that uh, when, when people are polled, including on our question of the week, why station does it for us a while ago, the environment is and climate change in particular is like right at the top of the list of people's priorities. As a matter of fact, real talkers and I've seen other polling across Canada that shows that it's a bigger priority when it comes to campaign promises to people than COVID-19 response and economic recovery, which is remarkable. Uh, but still, I don't feel like you'd really know it on the street right now. If you take a look at what people are talking about, what, what role do you think environmental policy is going to have between now and the, the 20th? And and what significance do you think that Paris Agreement? I know that, you know, in particular, conservatives have cynicism around it and Canada's involvement. Where do you see Canada moving, moving forward? Well, so a couple of things um, out west, it, you know, the, the what, what's being talked about on the street might be slightly different than elsewhere in Canada, obviously. But climate is permeating every aspect of policy, whether it's economics or, or migration issues and tech issues. And, you know, and, and when you look at that chart of the, the number of coal plant plot, uh, plants that have been canceled over the last uh, 10, 15 years across the world, that wasn't necessarily a policy issue. That was because the economy has shifted, that solar and other uh, means of generating power are so much cheaper now that coal is just basically becoming the buggy whip of the, of the energy industry, which is an important point that maybe needs to be reiterated to some of your policymakers in Alberta. Um, but the second thing, I, I can't leave your show without plugging the Veterans Transition Network. Uh, you can Google them. They're uh, right now running safe houses and rat lines out of Afghanistan. They're saving lives. They need money to do it, though. Uh, and so if your uh, your listeners can make a donation, even $10 can help save a family. That's Veterans Transition Network. You can Google them. Uh, they're a Canadian charity. They'll give you a tax receipt. And, uh, you know. It'll be a, a real mitzvah. You can find them at vtncanada.org, uh, vtncanada.org, or you can call 1-844-CDN-VETS. That's 1-844-236-8387. Uh, our guest, one of our favorites, and we're not saying that just because I'm talking to him right now, editor-at-large for McLean's Magazine, former Canadian diplomat and founder of the charity Building Markets, Scott Gilmore. It's always good to connect, my man. Take care of yourself. Yeah, Bye -bye. you too. Let us know what you think about this, Real Talkers, uh, what you've just heard from Scott. And again, vtncanada.org, uh, where you can make a donation. I love that. You know what? He says, like, even 10 bucks, someone can swoop in and donate 10 grand, which would be amazing. But 10 bucks at a time, oftentimes, is how these things happen, how these resources come around. Absolutely. I just put it in the chatterbox. That's our live chat in uh, on our YouTube. And I'll also be tweeting it out at at Real Talk RJ. I would like to embarrass you for a second, Sarah Hoyles. Uh, I've just checked my personal email inbox and I received a note from Scott Gilmore. Uh, who says, just as an aside, I've done everything from CBC to CNN to Al Jazeera and your Chase producer prep emails are the best I've ever seen. That from 
Scott Gilmore, there's a bouquet for you today. Very nicely done. Nicely done, teammate. I think every once in a while, it's very important. I mean, not too often, right? Because we're we're, we're an upstart bootstrapped startup and we can't afford to be dishing out raises to these two as much as or as often as they deserve them. But every once in a while, we need to recognize that this show would not happen without these two incredible talents that join me in studio every morning, Sarah Hoyles and Samuel Brooks. Let's remind you that the team at Park Power right now, another group that we are so grateful for their support. Chris and his team at Park Power have been with us since the start here on Real Talk, powering our hashtag Real Talk RJ, and of course, providing internet, electricity, and natural gas to so many different Real Talkers across the province of Alberta. If you haven't checked them out yet, why not? You can compare rates on their website. And of course, they want to buy you dinner. 70 bucks off your first bill, as long as you sign up using the promo code 2021-REALTALK. You can buy your internet, electricity, natural gas from anybody. You have options in Alberta. Why not make it Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider? A big shout out to the team at Friesen Brothers as well. They've had a tradition for 44 years. I absolutely love this. People are filling their freezers and the Friesen Brothers butchers are busy because the Alberta Beef Roundup is back all the way through until September 23rd. Your chance to get an entire hip of fresh Alberta beef cut the way you want it. Roasts, ground round, stewing cubes, steaks, whatever. They'll cut it per your order, customized just for you. It's a tradition. The Alberta Beef Roundup at Friesen Brothers, Alberta grown and Alberta owned. Well, yesterday, and we've been talking about the uh, incredible outpouring of support for Julie Rohr, a good friend of this show. She's a member of our editorial board, of course, as you know, and she joined us last week courageously um, in what she's describing as the end stages of her cancer journey. And we've been receiving emails that we're going to read throughout the week. We encourage you to share your thoughts. We heard from Lance earlier today talking about his cancer journey. We, we heard from uh, Innisfail counselor Jean Barkley, the impact that Julie's had on her and an Emmy's email about about despite never meeting Julie, the impact that she's feeling uh, the celebrity involvement here has been really interesting we mentioned a private concert last night for about 20 minutes virtually Chantel Kreviasek playing for Julie and, and her husband and, and, and Ryan Reynolds Rick Mercer and and many of the cast members of Schitt's Creek including Dan Levy posting videos online it's been just absolutely remarkable to see Dan Levy I have to assume Sarah was was recording that video probably from his hotel or wherever he was staying in New York City because last night there he was stealing the show at the Met Gala 2021 it's fashion's biggest night out and uh Dan Levy boy did he ever show up on the red carpet that's amazing what he's wearing for folks that are listening to the podcast I mean it's got big billowing like uh baby blue and purples and big puffy sleeves and then on the front there's oh it looks like there's two individuals in in in, in an kiss. embrace it's yeah it's uh this is the uh, blue lows jonathan anderson and a cartier collaboration that he's rocking and it was uh <laughs> described as any uh, and i just happened to recognize that sarah off the top of my head i I, 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 I didn't do any research that's just i just recognized it <laughs> But people are describing it in all seriousness, um, inspired by the Costume Institute's uh, exhibit called In America, a Lexicon of Fashion. Uh, and then this year's Met theme. There's a theme every year. Uh, Dan Levy collaborated with Anderson to create a powerful ensemble that celebrates the resilience and the love and the joy 
of the LGBTQIA plus community. So uh, really beautiful stuff. Dan Levy, do you remember? I mean, I know everybody does, but the early days, the VJ on much. And then he was doing he was doing like the after show on on uh, like he was doing like reality TV after shows and, and for and, the hills for the hills. And, and which was hilarious, by the way. Yeah. Uh, but he, and, and then boom. And now he's just I mean, I think like along with his dad, Eugene, people see them as, as like national treasures. Absolutely. I loved uh, his mom tweeting and, and posting about how she was so concerned about her sweet, tender hearted son. How would the world, you know, impact him and and see him and treat him? And she just said that she can't believe how much he's been embraced and she's just relieved and happy. It kind of feels like, you know, we, we have our, our guests here, our political analysts talking about the generational politicians. Mm. And then oftentimes, like because I'm a total nerd and a geek in fantasy hockey and fantasy hockey, basically, there's like there's well, I, I guess like for sure, probably. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. My family first, for sure. <laughs> and then and then my job as general manager of the Hannah Haymakers fantasy hockey and, and then real talk. That's kind of how it goes in my, my priorities. And um, you, it always catches your attention at drafts when you have like, you know, I've just traded for um, I, I don't want to talk too much about it because everyone will lose interest. But I've just traded for Matthew Kachuk on my team. He's the brother of Brady Kachuk and they are the sons of Keith Kachuk. And uh, Keith Kachuk was on my team like 20 years ago. So I had to go get his sons. You, you, you read into the generational kind of implicate like oh he's this is an nhler's son so he'll probably be pretty good too and it feels to me like on the on the on the content creation side on the creativity side maybe even on kind of the national treasure side it, it feels like eugene levy has with with still lots of gas in the tank let's Absolutely. be let's be clear eugene levy is not going anywhere is still brilliant obviously but you, you were watching this slow torch being passed and i think it's amazing to be able to watch them collaborate on things i have a bit of a kind of a crush on the levy family uh which i think Rightly is, is, so. is quite clear um what i think is really interesting is like dan levy was incredible beautiful like loved the ensemble yesterday but the other thing that was just blowing up was the idea that Nicki minaj oh boy was like i'm not there and you want to know why I'm not there? Let's get to her tweet. This is wild. Uh, Nicki Minaj, obviously everybody knows her artist, uh, singer, performer, uh, says uh, they want you to get vaccinated for the Met. If I get vaccinated, it won't be for the Met. It'll be once I feel I've done enough research and I'm working on that now. In the meantime, my loves, be safe. Wear the mask with two strings that grips your head and face, not that loose one. And then the internet explodes. And so she follows up with... What some might describe as an overshare, uh, she says, my cousin in Trinidad won't get the vaccine because his friend got it and became impotent. His testicles became swollen. His friend was weeks away from getting married, and now the girl called off the wedding. So just pray on it and make sure that you're comfortable with your decision and not bullied. That from Nicki Minaj. If you're her cousin's buddy, you're going, uh, do you mind? But also, get to a doctor, you might have an STI. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. That's guess. not from a vaccine, my friend. There's something else going on. So I like, I'm like, good, she canceled the wedding. It's because he's cheating. He's a cheater. Hoyles, you have to say things, you know this, you've been in the game, for you have to say things like allegedly. Allegedly. Or, or it's being alleged that, or some are speculating that. So if I say allegedly, 
right now that well, covers you, it, right? You, you could say right? you could say you may want to check his phone. That's what you could say. <laughs> Speaking of vaccinations, uh, yesterday we, we go from kind of smirking about something uh, to being pretty deadly serious about demonstrations outside hospitals and healthcare centers across the country, including here where we live. And many of you have been chiming in on this. Christy sent us an email. Uh, addressed as a matter of fact, CCing us, but addressing this to the premier, uh, wondering, does our healthcare system have to completely collapse before you'll do anything? Uh, for context right now, in our home province of Alberta, 803 people in hospital with COVID-19, 198 of them in the ICU. Alberta's actually set a record for ICU admissions related to COVID in this fourth wave. Christy wonders how many people have to die from preventable deaths because surgeries are being canceled or they're scared to go to hospitals that are full of COVID. She CCs the prime minister on this. Patty Haidu, federal health minister as well, uh, wonders, PM, health minister, are you not able to step in and do something? That from Christy, I saw a pretty powerful image yesterday. Check this out from a, a hospital here. This was posted by Dr. Stephanie Cooper. Uh, some doctors posting what appears to be a printed out sign. You guys are, are you two. I think you two are. I, I, listen to me. You two are too young. I'm assuming you two are too young to remember print shop with the dot matrix printers. Did either of you have that? I sure did. You remember you used to be able to print the banners. Yeah. And then if the perforated uh, paper yeah gave way then you're like ah! yeah you have to do the whole thing again and then your parents would be like what are you using the printer for stop using the printer so yeah. much with your banners i remember uh having like an old dot matrix printer and then we got we, we upgraded we got an inkjet printer Ooh. and all of a sudden you couldn't print a continuous banner you had to print them in sheets and tape them together it was worse <laughs> exactly but that's what these doctors did and i gotta say it's pretty funny uh this spotted in a hospital out of a window facing demonstrators just yesterday go intubate yourself it reads, which I thought was pretty amazing. And we saw this in Toronto uh, from a satirist. I thought this was brilliant. Uh, a fellow showing up. They're calling him a counter protester. But with these signs, I demand my right to be ignorant and selfish, reads his sign. Ignorant and selfish. And the other side of the sign was pretty amazing, too. I know more than the scientists, which was pretty amazing. I admired the courage. I thought it was pretty important that people like that are out there not making light of a serious situation. I know that there have been some uh, elevated tensions outside some of these hospitals, but you're telling us how you feel about all this. Allison wrote in and said, I was uh, listening to your show, Ryan, including your conversation with Dr. Darren Markland yesterday on Monday uh, about how it must feel to be a healthcare worker right now. And Allison says it hit me that I don't even know how to describe how I'm feeling anymore. Uh, the first wave, it was fear. And then the second wave, it was determination to make it through. And then the third wave brought exhaustion like I've never felt before. And now in the midst of the fourth, I don't even know how to describe what I feel walking through the doors of the hospital. Allison says I've been working in critical care or emergency medicine for the last eight years, which is pretty much my entire career. And I've been plucked from my home unit and I've been sent back to the ICU again due to this surge in cases. And this time around, it's really tough. It's more than just the workload. When I got into nursing, I knew I would have people in my care whose values didn't match my own. And I can honestly say up until now that I haven't had a problem with it. And she says and I'm including murderers and, and terrorists and other assorted unsavory individuals that I've cared for terrorists. I wonder if Allison was in the hospital the night of that 
U-Haul attack in Edmonton. I wonder if that's what she's talking about. She doesn't say what city she's in. She says, I believe my job as a nurse is to provide expert care to the best of my ability, regardless of, of, of what I think of you as a person. And I can tell you honestly that my coworkers believe the same thing. But this last little bit, if I'm honest, I've struggled to do that. Why? She says, because I'm acutely aware that every unvaccinated COVID-19 patient that I'm getting in ICU is one more person who's preventing a high school friend of mine from getting a spot so he can have his surgery. She says, I'm talking about Eric Mulder. She says, I'm talking about who you mentioned on the show yesterday. The guy who posted the CT scan, the brain tumor. He was told his surgery has been postponed. She says, I really didn't think I would see a day when a mandarin orange-sized brain tumor didn't get you a prompt surgery. And what's more, these patients are young. Many in my age group, says Allison, in their 30s, denying COVID, like they're, you know, even as they're dying from it, and they're begging us to do something when the best tool at their disposal is the vaccines. And other people are outside these hospitals protesting. It's been a deep dive to find the compassion and the empathy that I think is essential to do my job. And if I'm honest, the well is getting dry. She says if there's typos in this email, it's because it was a long, hard day yesterday and I'm currently pumping myself to go do it again. She says it's my hope and wish that real talkers are able to stay healthy out there. That from Allison. Standing fucking ovation, Allison. Thank you for the work you're doing. I don't blame you one bit. That lack of empathy. We talked about this on the show yesterday. That we know that healthcare workers aren't the type that are going to be drawn in and deny quality care to people, but how they must have to dig deeper than they ever have before with people of the same mindset, both outside and in the ICU. What an unbelievable, what do you call it, scenario is such a tepid, flaccid, insufficient word. It's a debacle. It's a disgrace is what it is. We are going to change gears big time in just a second with a sexuality researcher out of the University of Toronto. What happens to your sex life when you welcome a child to planet Earth and is porn the best or worst idea? People are going, are you guys really segueing from anti-vaxxers to porn? Heck yeah. It's real talk. We'll bring it to you every single day. First, we want to remind you that our friends at Westworld Computers right now have their annual sale right now. This is their back to the future school and work sale. And they know that this is the time of year pretty much right now, whether it's something for the kids, for homework. Maybe it's yourself boostering, you know, and like really sort of sending a, a, a shot of new tech into your home office. Their back to school and work sale Back to the Future means when you buy a new Mac with Apple Care Plus at Westworld, they'll give you up to 100 bucks to spend on awesome accessories. And if an iPad Pro with Apple Care Plus is on your list, 50 bucks in instant savings on accessories. Of course, you can save up to hundreds of dollars trading in your old or your current Mac or iPad. And don't forget, when you trade it in, no matter how old your gear is, they're going to transfer all your data over for free. For a person like me, a technophobe, that's a huge deal. And they'll also make sure that all your personal information is pulled from your old device and securely removed. Oh, and by the way, if you're looking for work, the team at Westworld is looking for the next generation of the Pirates of Silicon Valley Edmonton chapter. If you'd love, I love how this is not a boring place to work. 
This is not a boring place to work at Westworld. If your strengths lie in sales or teaching or fixing broken things or marketing or customer service, you can email employment at westworld.ca. Employment at westworld.ca and you let them know that you heard about this on Real Talk. I love when partners of ours use the platform to let people know they're hiring. That's a good news story no matter what. Also, a big shout out to the teams at Local Waste. You know, you can find them online at localwaste.ca and, and you may sit there and go, well, I don't, I don't own a shopping mall or a, or a hotel or I, I'm not a retailer. I don't really need to negotiate a big garbage bin. What about doing a purge? What about, you know, taking a tree out of the yard or doing some fall cleanup with your landscaping? What about an estate obligation that you may have? They've got bins of all sizes, and it is their business, most especially in Alberta and Saskatchewan, to find you the perfect fit. You can keep it local and find them online at localwaste.ca. Don't forget Trash Talk every Friday, presented by our friends at Local Waste. You need to get something off your chest. Send us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Make sure to mention it or designate it to Trash Talk. Well, sexual well-being, we can all agree that it's an important contributor uh, to the quality of a relationship, in particular the romantic quality, and of course your health and quality of life. But what happens when kids enter the mix, and what can you do in a healthy sense to get your groove back? This is Nathan Lenhart's wheelhouse as a sexuality researcher, a doctoral candidate, a Vanier scholar at the University of Toronto. He's published more than 35 academic articles on things like pornography, sexual passion, and sexual quality. Over time, he's been featured on CNN, Men's Health, Psychology Today, and now Real Talk. Nathan, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. How did this get on your radar? Well, I can tell you that uh, it's not one of those things that since I was a little boy, I was hoping to someday become a sexuality researcher. It didn't quite work that way. Um, one of the things that first got me interested in this subject was actually living in Bulgaria for a couple of years as a missionary and later returning there to volunteer in an orphanage for a month. And just in some of my experiences there, I worked with a couple that the husband ended up having an affair it really devastated the family. Uh, when I worked in the orphanage, I worked with a number of children that were victims of sexual abuse. And I just got started thinking about how crucial of a role sexuality can play in people's lives and their relationships. Uh, furthermore, I just kind of noticed that pornography was pretty rampant in the areas I was living in. There seemed to be a bit of a commodification mindset surrounding sexuality and made me want to understand better what was happening there, what kind of messages were being sent and how they were being received. So when you're talking, are, are you still, would you still describe yourself as a person of faith? Uh, yes. So I, I would, and um, I'm totally happy to uh, acknowledge that as I come to this with bias. I think that any researcher does based on their background. So I certainly bring values to the table as a person of faith in the way I view this subject Though I also try to be as fair as I can with the evidence and acknowledging that someone with the values that I have might have different experiences with sexuality and pornography than someone that doesn't. Yeah, you know, I, I appreciate your candor on that. And, and let me say that I, I firmly believe that I, I think it's just common sense uh, that everybody has bias. And I think that everybody has their own personal value parameters and everybody approaches an issue based on their understanding or their personal conviction. Um, what I'm most interested in is how people step outside of that 
that, observe uh, other opinions, solicit other perspectives outside of theirs, and then, you know, broaden their depth of understanding, which I think is an important exercise. We endeavor to do that every single day here. So why don't we start with, I mean, when you talk about, you know, pornography, we want to talk about, you know, how that fits into the sexual relationship of, of two or more different people. But why don't we talk first of the impact that having kids has on sex lives is there one proclamation we can make or is every couple or every family unit different yeah there's there's definitely some variation uh, i just worked with some colleagues actually where we published a study showing some of that variation where we followed over 200 couples over time and we broke down basically subpopulations of couples and found things like when it came to sexual desire there are about 25 percent of couples that were able to retain relatively high sexual desire throughout the time there are about 36 percent that had a moderate sexual desire throughout the transition but there were 39 percent of these couples that had a pretty major discrepancy that started to emerge that uh, in most cases the mothers um them being the ones that had a far lower sexual desire through the course of this transition uh, than the husbands. There were, there were a few couples in there that weren't married, but the vast majority were. Um, so yeah, we definitely see some variation there in what these trajectories look like over time. When you're interviewing these couples, when you're talking to these people, are you interviewing them separately or together? Yeah, so this is, uh, this is survey data. So this is basically asking a series of questions about their sexual well-being at one time point, following up three months later, asking similar questions, and then following them over the course of, we fir- the first time point was about 18 to 20 weeks into pregnancy, and the last time point was about a year after uh, the child was born, so over a good amount of time. Do you have, I mean, are you able to sort of find consensus points uh, you know, demographically or otherwise, when it comes to the importance or people's perceived importance of of intimacy and sex with regards to the overall quality of the relationship do different genders or age groups or, or other demographic uh, communities s- sort of place a different priority on it? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I haven't um, I haven't seen many specific numbers on that, but it is pretty common consensus that one of, if not the primary distinguisher between a romantic relationship and any other type of relationship is the sexual relationship. Uh, There's still generally a consensus and expectation that it's going to be a somewhat monogamous, permanent uh, bond between the couple. Now, obviously there's exceptions. There seems to be a growing trend towards non-monogamous expectations in relationship, but it's still the norm that this is something that's to be exclusive between two people in a relationship. So it really is a pretty big distinguisher between any other type of relationship you have. You really are noticing that, that there's a, a, a discernible or noticeable or significant trend toward non-monogamous approaches to relationships. You're seeing that? In some of the data, yes, uh, among younger adults, there are more people that express an openness to that. Um, the exact numbers, uh, that's not my primary area of research, so I, I'm afraid I can't tell you some of the exact numbers there. But, but yes, in the younger generation, there is a growing acceptance, though, again, uh, it's safe to say that that is not the norm. 
And it's still yet to be seen the extent to which this is something that is more experimental. Maybe it's something that they try out in some of their early adulthood years and they decide uh, this isn't for me long term. Uh, or it may be a growing trend that continues to grow. We don't really know yet. But once again, the norm remains an expectation towards exclusivity and, and monogamy. I'm, I'm feeling a, a, a real talk why station question of the week coming on about sexuality. You're you're inspiring something here, Nathan. I'm looking forward to what our audience will say. We'll we'll ask those <laughs> those questions. You wouldn't ask someone to their face oftentimes. Uh, Emma on our live chat says, I'm not going to lie. Uh, right after having babies, I was in the OMG, don't you dare touch me and get me pregnant again camp. That from Emma and Miranda says, I got my ex fixed the week after my daughter was born. She got her ex fixed, but like at the vet? Is that where you took Miranda? Where do you get him fixed? So some people, uh, the, the, the well dries up with regards to intimacy and the frequency of it or the quality of it or the interest of one or more parties uh, in the family unit. And some turn to pornography, to self-stimulation, to masturbation. And this is what you're taking a look at right now. Take us into you know, how this is on your radar and, and what you're finding from these surveys. Yeah. So in general, in my work on pornography, it's the research paints a far more complicated picture than I originally envisioned when I started going into this work. There's some research suggesting that pornography can have a positive influence in your relationship, some suggesting no real influence, um, and evidence suggesting a negative influence. And generally speaking, I would say most of correlational survey data is showing on average a negative influence. But I've really been interested in trying to understand what are the conditions for why we're seeing some of these different effects? Why in some cases are people reporting positive? Why no effect? Why negative? And one of the best attempts I've been able to make to reconcile some of these distinctions is the way people are thinking about their sexual relationship. So for example, if you ask someone to report on a scale of one to 10, how satisfied are you with your sexual relationship? You might have, if you ask that to someone that's been in a relationship for two weeks, as opposed to someone that's been in a relationship for 10 years, uh, you're probably going to, you could have them both report a seven out of seven and then report a very different dynamic in their sexual relationship. So the way that I've attempted to reconcile some of the findings out there is to suggest that while pornography, while sexual media, a lot of the messages in that are congruent with more short-term outcomes, there's certainly going to be a, a sense of tension relieved from masturbating and viewing pornography. There may be some ideas that can come for viewing different sexual techniques uh, different ways someone goes about doing sexuality, brings some excitement to the relationship. All these things are, are reasons that people report why pornography might help them out in the sexual relationship, sp spicing things up, if you will. Uh, but my primary concern is on the more of the long term with a major message for a lot of pornography is a message of objectification which is basically a separation of identity from sexuality. One of the most important things we can have in a long-term sexual relationship is coming to feel loved and accepted completely for who we are. And it can be challenging to have that in the sexual dynamic if you're accepting sexual messages of sexuality without identity. So this is like, 
I'm like, I'm trying to think of like your, your typical, you know, at least with video, you know, your typical porn, it doesn't start with like two and a half hours of people talking about their feelings and how much they care about one another <laughs> and scratching each other's backs and asking how their days were. Um, if I remember correctly, the guy just kind of shows up to fix the shower and the the lonely housewife is home and I'm not trying to make light of it, but but uh, well, I guess I am. And uh, but but this it's there's kind of this unrealistic, obviously, I mean, the whole point is that it's fantasy and I don't think people tune mm-hmm. in to listen to the two and a half hour chat ahead of, you know, when they get into it. How much of an impact right. does that have on on sort of, you know, what people will bring to a relationship in the sense of if you view and, and maybe you're I mean, you're the researcher, not me, but maybe you can say men are this, you know, men are from Mars and women are from Venus and whatever. Or I would imagine it's yeah. probably way more complex than that. But mm-hmm. maybe you get to a point where somebody who's really into and you might even use the word addicted. I've heard people talk about being addicted to porn um, in a way. I have to imagine that that it, it might strip sex down to just the carnal release right to that act, to that relief, yeah. that temporary relief you described. And then I have to imagine that that probably creates a bigger problem for intimacy outside of sex and ultimately for the strength of the foundation of the, of the relationship as a whole. Yeah, I, I'd say that that's one of the primary concerns. So you might uh, you might look at there's a physical component to a sexual relationship. There's an emotional, there's a relational for many people. There's a spiritual. Uh, if you're only focused solely on this pleasure-centered physical aspect of sexuality, it absolutely makes sense that viewing something like pornography could help to stimulate that and can bring some extra excitement. Uh, But the material being viewed is definitely on average from what we're seeing in content analyses isn't so congruent with some of those other pieces there. And there are caveats, certainly. There's a there's a wide variety of factors that influence the degree that it actually influences your expectations around sexuality. You need to consider how early people started viewing it. You need to consider the extent that it's an exclusive source of information about sexuality. Um, all of these different minor nuances come into play for how deeply it's going to influence the sexual dynamics in your relationship. Uh, but there is pretty consistent evidence emerging with following people over time that it does at least have a subtle influence on the way people uh, view sexuality in relationships. Interesting points here on our live chat. I always appreciate people just letting us know where they're at on this. Jen says that she and her hubby, uh, she says, have, have always sort of taken the position that we do have kids, but we can't forget about us. And she says that mm-hmm. sex and communication are a huge priority. Communication is key, says Jen. We're going on 14 years um, she says that in, in her perspective is that porn sets unrealistic expectations. So she's not a fan. Kim with an interesting question. I don't know the answer. I'm, I'm sure you might uh, says she wonders if, if the rate of porn consumption or porn use by the under 18 crowd or let's call them the next generation, the young adults. Uh, she wonders, isn't it extremely high? And is it fair to say that the message of the objectification of women for straight men is just as bad as it ever was in the scenarios that they observe. Is she onto something? Yeah. So I, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but certainly a number of publications where we've looked at age of exposure to pornography and frequency of use. And yes, it, it is becoming a fairly normative aspect of growing up. It's, 
uh, it's extremely rare that someone makes it to adulthood without some sort of exposure to pornography. And I would, I would probably agree that this is where some of my biggest concerns come in of this age of exposure and it becoming a primary source of information surrounding sexuality. If you have someone that starts to view pornography in their uh, mid-adulthood years, they're in a relationship, they have a lot of experience with sexuality, it's likely not going to have as profound of an influence on the way someone views a sexual relationship. If you have someone start viewing pornography on a fairly consistent basis at age 11, 12, mm -hmm. they're not getting many alternative sources of information about how sex actually works. I have a lot of concerns about some of the messages that they might be internalizing and the scripts, their understanding of sexuality that they're eventually going to be taking into a relationship with a partner. Uh, we've got some great comments on online. Michelle says that, that rom-coms, romantic comedies are equally unrealistic, setting people up for disappointment. <laughs> probably right. Lisa says, I often wonder if ease of access to porn changes, changes people's expectations when it comes to sex. Ease of access. You know, back in the day, somebody might find, you know, dirty magazines hidden under the bed or like in grandpa's garden shed in an old dusty box or whatever the case is. And now... I mean, you know, people joke around. Remember when you used to have to pay for porn? I mean, you can porn is, is everywhere. It's almost slapping you in the face. I mean, it's just all people get it on their phones. People get it on their desktops at work, though. I don't recommend it. Is that changing the dynamic? Do you think? I mean, are we going to look back at this so-called, you know, digital era where, where everything became so much more accessible 10 or 15 years ago? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that. <sighs> Today, we, we still don't completely know the extent to which it has an influence on people. I mean, one, one thing that's tricky is with uh, this, ver this really happened all at once. We don't really have much of a control group. So you have people that have grown up with the Internet, with the pornography being so pervasive and so accessible and just sexual media in general, even if it's not strictly pornography, sexualized messages and advertisements that aren't necessarily as censored, just this general sense sexualization has become um, pretty open and accessible. So it's, it's tough to know just how much it's influencing an entire generation when there's not so much of a control group and there's so many things going on. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's... Uh, I think there's enough research out there to suggest that it is having an influence on the way that people see things. Hmm. Uh, but we're still, a lot of the people that have grown up with the internet uh, being a very big part of their life, these are the people that are just starting to enter relationships in a lot of cases, are just starting to have more long-term commitments like marriage. So it's, it's going to be interesting just seeing over the next 10 to 20 years what ends up happening with that yeah jennifer says i can tell you my hubby watched porn when he was younger and now his expectation for himself is way too high um <laughs> jillian says we have a newborn so i don't remember what sex is but i'm pretty sure that it's how i got into this mess and uh some random guy I appreciate this point says i feel that porn is especially problematic for gay men because that's usually mm -hmm. the first experience we have with relationships entirely not just sex have you been pursuing those different angles based on where people are with regards to sexual preference or, or how they identify, you know, on the gender spectrum, those that are maybe non-binary? I mean, are these implications that you're also taking a look at? 
Yeah, so I haven't had the chance yet to explore that as deeply as some other subjects, but there is at least some research out there. Often, I, I think there's more qualitative research. So this isn't so much asking a bunch of survey questions in a, in a questionnaire, but just having actual interviews with people and asking them to talk more in depth about their experience. And I think it's safe to say that as with a lot of things on this subject, the experiences vary. There's, uh, I think that there is good theoretical reason, as was mentioned, that perhaps people that are sexual minorities, they don't necessarily have as many opportunities to engage in a sexual relationship, uh, which can be, they're more likely to turn to pornography as a primary source of sexual education. Certainly could see that. However, I do certainly hear other cases where uh, there's those that are sexual minorities that it can be validating in a way and reaffirming and trying to understand the nature of their sexuality as they're trying to just grapple with and make sense of their identity and what it is that they are looking for sexually. Interesting stuff. Nathan, I want to thank you for sharing uh, this insight with us. Uh, these are the types of conversations we want to have. This is real stuff, man. This is stuff that impacts people's everyday lives. Uh, folks can give you a follow on Twitter at NathanDL12. Uh, thanks for making time for us today and uh, good luck with the rest of your research. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. You got it. That's Nathan Lenhart, who's a Vanier scholar, doctoral candidate, University of Toronto. Uh, he's been on CNN Men's Health Psychology today, and now he can add real talk to the list, which is pretty cool. We're going to give Hawes uh, one of the comments of the day. Hawes, who also notes porn, does set an unrealistic expectation for the speed at which a pizza guy will show up, which is another great observation. But I appreciate the serious stuff, too, and, and, I, and I appreciate that people are are, are, are telling us even their own personal stories when you, especially on our live chat, right? When in many circumstances, that's your real name and your photo. And I want to have conversations like this. Now, here's the deal. I'm serious. I think that that would be fascinating subject matter for a get real question of the week. And so we'll let the team at Y station know this week, our question, you can answer it at ryanjesperson.com, ask you about back to school, where you're at with that. And, and we're hoping to hear from hundreds, if not thousands of parents next week, we've already worked on the question. The team is putting it together as we speak, literally on protests. You know, have you ever participated in one? Are they relevant? What do you think that should be the limit of protests? How do you choose which ones you will attend or where you'll get involved in the depth of your participation? We want to do a deep dive on that, obviously inspired by inspired what's the opposite of inspired obviously prompted let's say at least by what we're seeing across the country outside hospitals right now maybe the week after unless something really really forces its way to the forefront um, we're always looking for insights on where this audience is at and i think if we had a really frank or real talk about sexuality and where this audience is from and not just about porn and not just about your sex like af life after kids and not you know just sort of what you might describe as a heteronormative survey i mean i really want to get into it and we'll think of some cool questions the team at y station is always great at finding those angles as well the team at kubi energy wants us to remind you that at kubienergy.ca right now you can learn more about your sustainable energy goals and how to get there what's realistic what's doable we want to i'm going to show you tomorrow this is the hook tomorrow we're going to show you some photos of the kubi cube being dropped off off the grid at a rural location i mean they're finding ways for agricultural producers for people that own they don't have cabins and cottages all kinds of ways to bring green energy to where you're looking to power up kubi energy at kubienergy.ca a tesla certified company doing installations residential commercial and industrial across western canada 
empowering your life. And of course, the sponsors of Positive Reflections, maybe five of our favorite minutes every week, our first show of the week. You can send us your random acts of kindness, your insights, your tributes to Julie Rohr to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Make sure you note it as a positive reflection. Also, a shout out to Scott and Brad and the team at St. Albert and, of course, Sherwood Dodge as well. Sherwood Dodge Jeep, your home for the best inventory right now of the Jeep brand, trusted since 1941. That brand new Grand Cherokee is out. I've seen it myself. The Grand Cherokee L with the third row of seats, the seven-seater. For the first time they've ever released one, it also means that they've got a clear space in the showrooms. You can pick up a Grand Cherokee Laredo, brand new right now for under forty-seven grand at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. We've been reading a lot of your emails today. I wanted to get to this one from Shauna yesterday. She sent this in uh, late night. I love the late night emails. You guys are just like me. Our brains are just going pedal to the metal as the rest of the world sleeps. She said, Ryan, I don't always agree with the perspectives of your guests on real talk and sometimes i don't like where they take an interview uh, but that seems to be the point isn't it that we need places to disagree to be moderated in that disagreement and to be given space to be uncomfortable she said i want to thank you for the show's ongoing dedication to the community and, and the faith that you demonstrate in us to make up our own damn minds with solid information it's infuriating at times and deeply unpleasant but so incredibly necessary if we're ever going to make a dent in the polarization that is literally plaguing our province. Thanks especially for interviewing Kaylin on Monday. And, and thanks for interviewing Julie Rohr last week. These brave folks fuel me to keep doing hard work for what I hope is the right path to bring light and healing wherever I can. Such tremendous humans. Thanks for this network. And thanks for sharing it with us. That from Shauna. Unbelievable email to receive late last night. And I so appreciate it. Did that just hit home with you? I can see it a little bit in your face. Yes, but also the mention of late night. I saw that you posted a Twitter poll about switching from the wire to (laughs) Peaky Blinders. Yeah, I did. And um, I'm going to have to go and say... Did you vote on it already? I did. And I said shame on you really peaky blinders first and i am willing to go like to the wall on this the peaky blinders season one and two phenomenal and then it just craters okay whereas the the wire is like consistent i'm sorry i mean the wire the the wire to me and and uh, first of all before we go are you are you in on this at all are you do you have a skin in the game with sam with regards to other peaky blinders of the wire i i I don't i've seen the wire the wire is phenomenal it's one of the greatest tv series ever minute i I will admit have not watched peaky blinders i've got it i've got to be honest and i know that people are going to judge me for saying this um because you always say like everyone's like how about arcade fire and everyone's like oh my gosh it's like the greatest band canada's ever graduated and then uh, half those people don't actually like arcade fire one bit or like you know how about hey how about this new restaurant downtown have you ever tried oh my gosh it's such a fabulous restaurant but like people actually can't stand it the portions are too small and i just want a shepherd's pie and all this fancy fruit you know people always try to say they love something to fit in with the cool kids but they don't love it and i'm i'm the wire's okay <gasps> the wire's fine it's fine oh. it's fine but i have given it i'm halfway i'm i'm on episode eight season three and i think there's 12 in each season which means i've given it 24 and and like i've given it more than 30 episodes more than 30 hours of my time almost a full work week and last night i just went no nope. 
Is it the no? Is season three the the city hall one, like where we're talking about the the mayor? Uh, well, no. Season three is more like it's it's in the projects, oh, and man. and they're they're working on uh, you know building the high rise, and I don't know. I just kind of I don't know. So so I did. You're right at one thirty one in the morning. Tweet that I was pressing play on season one, episode one of Peaky Blinders, which if, if you do decent math, uh, clues you into the fact that I was up until at least 2.30. And if I'm telling you the truth, I was up later than that because I'm intrigued by this show. Yeah. A- and I'm also operating right now, fueled and powered by coffee and our coffee sponsorship currently up for grabs. You can be in touch at media at ryanjesperson.com if you would like to bring good coffee to the Real Talk studio. So far, I asked, I've just pulled shoot on season three, episode eight of The Wire to press play on season one, episode one of Peaky Blinders. Uh, I asked you, is it a good call? Is it a terrible mistake? Or is it time to go to sleep, Ryan? Uh, Leading the poll narrowly uh, with 36% of the vote is go to sleep, Ryan. Um, 35.7% of the 515 votes thus far with 14 hours left is good call and 28% of you believe that I have made a terrible mistake I'll probably go back to the wire at some point I've, I've seen some opinions from people I trust that have said you have to see this one through you do there's only five seasons so it's doable but there's so much to watch on my list like Peaky Blinders is just one of them like I've also I'm also episode Two of season one of The Sopranos. I've not yet seen that. I haven't either. I need to do that. I've only seen one episode of season one of Game of Thrones. Everybody's telling me I should watch that. See what I mean? So I got a lot of TV to watch and I am planning on spending some time with my family too. I love that. You've got a lot of TV to watch. You just say, I've got a lot of TV to watch. I've got I've got less socializing to do and more TV to watch. We are in the fourth wave. Yeah, we might all. be locking down again yes, after so. all. So maybe I could watch. No, that. no, no. Uh, we're open. We're open. Never yeah, closing. Oh, Never best closing. Summer oh, ever. Yeah. Best summer ever. Coming up on tomorrow's show, we continue our uh, election coverage. We're going to talk to Winnipeg Free Press columnist, University of Manitoba Native Studies professor Negan Sinclair, plus an insider at Western University, Professor Scott Schaefer. That school reeling from an investigation after allegations of sexual violence. That and more coming up on tomorrow's Real Talk. We'll speak with you soon. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Editorial producer, Sarah Hoyles. Technical producer, Sam Brooks. Managing director, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Tanya Franklin. Merchandise operations, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis Settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.